Right. All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get started um, in just a few moments uh, with uh, Dr. Curto. Uh, grateful for you all to have shown up tonight. I know the weather is a bit foreboding, uh, and we don't know how everything's gonna play out there. Um, so I will I will get things going uh, very quickly. I just want to give a quick introduction to Dr. Curto. Um, uh, but but first, I want to just kind of trace back. I was trying to remember. I can never remember every year. I don't remember the year that we started this conference, and I don't remember all of our speakers. And it's not because um, you know they're insignificant folks, and it's an insignificant event. It's just because the the, the brain is uh, not as trusty as it used to be. Uh, but we began this uh, conference back in 2014. Uh, Carl Truman was our original uh, conference speaker, first conference speaker, and he was actually the one who came up with the idea. Uh, he came up, he came down from Philadelphia for the final Westminster Dallas uh, graduation, and he and I uh, were sitting in a pub uh, enjoying, um, I think it was a glass of milk, if I remember correctly, and uh, <laughs> uh, no, it was something more substantial than that, but we were, uh, and he said, you know, if you ever wanted to have a conference, I will, I'll happily come down and you don't even have to pay me for it. I'll just happily, you know, um, and so, you know, as a result, we've never paid <laughs> our speakers to, to, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but he, 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 well, yeah. uh, he, he sort of originated this conference uh, for us. And, uh, and since that time, that was 2014. So 2015, we had Craig Troxell uh, was, our, was our conference speaker. Uh, 2016 was Bill Dennison. Um, 2017, Jonathan Master, who's the current president at uh, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Uh, 2018, Ben Dunson was our speaker. 2019, Chad Van Dixhorn. Uh, 2020, D.G. Hart. 21, uh, somehow we managed to get one in 2020. And then 21, I can't say it was because of COVID, <laughs> but we didn't have a conference in 21. And then 2022, Greg Beal was our speaker. And this year, uh, Reverend Dr. Tony Curto uh, is our speaker. And uh, th- just a little bit of a the, the, the way that it came about was a former member of his church out in California, who is a current member of our church here, <laughs> Julie Anderson, said, Hey, Pastor Troutman, we, we ought to get, get Tony Curto to come and be our, our conference speaker. He, he knows all kinds of stuff about the Puritans. And so she remembered, you know, back whenever that was, how many ever years ago that was, uh, you know, the, probably the, what the... I don't know, I was going to joke there, um, but won't. Um, uh, just remembered how the encyclopedic knowledge that you had of the Puritans and your love for uh, those fathers in the faith. And, um, and so she's the one who kind of came up with the idea. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was, I think it was last year uh, in 2022 at GA, had the opportunity to approach Tony and just ask him. And uh, he very graciously accepted without, even, without hesitation. I always try to say, you don't have to answer now. But he just, without hesitation, uh, said, yes, I'll do it. Um, Tony uh, received his education from Westminster Theological Seminary, graduating with a Master of Arts degree, uh, then from Westminster Seminary, California, uh, graduating first with an MDiv and then with a DMIN. Um, and he served in pastoral ministry. He's, he's, a, he's a pastor at heart, um, and he's still doing pastoral ministry um, uh, or carrying that out, but uh, among many other things. But from 1980 to 94, he was a pastor uh, out in California. Then he was the regional missionary in California from 94 to 95. And then he served as a missionary evangelist in Uganda from, uh, from 1995 to 2004. And as a missionary uh, evangelist in Ethiopia from 2002 to the present, which is, you know, thinking about that, how does that happen? 
given the situation there. Uh, currently, as well, he's serving with the Mobile Theological Missions Corps um, and is, is uh, making his home base in Switzerland, to which he will uh, move on a permanent basis in December. Uh, there's, a, there's another reason for that, uh, and that is um, uh, Tony's wife of 51 years, Kathleen, passed away last year. Uh, and uh, I met Tony and Kathleen back in 2011 at the 75th anniversary of the OPC. My father-in-law introduced us. They were walking down the hallway, and I was telling Tony this earlier over lunch that Kathleen I never had met her in my life, but she she just she had the warmest personality. You, you, I just felt like almost immediately her son, uh, and um, just very very sweet, kind, loving woman. And uh, they were married for 51 years, got married at a young age, and uh, uh, she passed away back in April of 22. And uh, uh, but Tony is, uh, is recently remarried, uh, and uh, he married Simone, uh, who is a Swiss uh, uh, citizen, grew up in Switzerland, and uh, they've, they've, she was a friend of Kathleen's for many years, and, and Tony's too, was a student at Greenville uh, Seminary, um, and uh, so they were married earlier this year. And uh, t- surprised us all, came and showed up at, at uh, General Assembly this summer as a, as a recently married man. And, uh, but we are, we're thrilled for, for Tony. We, 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 uh, we hate to lose him from the States, um, but he's going to continue his uh, work as a missionary. Uh, he's going to continue uh, as a professor at Greenville Seminary, um, amazingly. And uh, we'll get to see him at General Assembly. Uh, so if you go to General Assembly, I uh, plan on seeing Dr. Curto there. Um, he has been a professor at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary since 2004, and there he serves as a professor of apologetics and missions. And, and those, two, those two areas of theological um, uh, uh, emphasis, I guess I'd put it, are, are never far from Tony uh, in his thinking and in his life. And uh, I have no doubt, um, though I don't know the specifics of everything he's going to say tonight or tomorrow, I have no doubt that, that those areas will come out as he uh, teaches us about the Puritans. Um, just a couple of, of logistical items. Um, if you have to go to the restroom, uh, if you go out this door and then to the left, there is a, there's a handicapped bathroom that's for either male or female. If you go down that short hallway and then take a, the next left, uh, the men's restroom is on the immediate left, and the women's is just a little farther down the hallway on the left. Um, after the evening session tonight, we'll have, we've got some refreshments in our fellowship hall, which is through the lobby and then to the left, and uh, just some light snacks and things like that. Uh, and then uh, tomorrow morning, uh, our session will begin, first session will begin at 9.30. Uh, the doors will open, uh, give us a little bit, we'll try to get here by 8.30 and get the doors open shortly after that, but I've, I believe we're going to have some Shipley's Donuts uh, uh, on, uh, on hand tomorrow morning. If you've never had Shipley's Donuts uh, you'll get to experience them tomorrow if you come early enough. They'll, they'll, they'll get snapped up quickly, so uh, uh, just be ready. Um, oh, I, I meant to say, too, sorry, one more thing. Um, Tony has six children. Uh, Tony has 13 grandchildren, and uh, so he's got, a, he's got a lot of reasons for getting back to the States uh, once uh, he takes up residence over in Switzerland. Um, so we are, we're thankful to have you here, brother, and uh, uh, and I, I, I'm just, I'm, I can't wait for, the, for these sessions, for this conference. Um, but before we let you come up here, let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious God, we are truly thankful, dear Lord. We're thankful for uh, the, all of the ways in which you call, uh, cause all things to fall out according to your perfect, uh, glorious, and good plan. 
Lord, we're thankful for the ways in which you caused this conference to come about. We're thankful for each and every speaker that we've had over the years, Lord, and we're grateful uh, to have our our brother, uh, Reverend Dr. Tony Curto, here with us tonight. We pray for your blessings upon him uh, as he uh, brings uh, these uh, these talks to us. We pray that you would uh, bless him with energy and with strength and with zeal and with clarity of mind. Lord, we pray above all else, even as he speaks about the Puritans, that Uh, more than uh, them being the central topic, that you uh, would cause your name to be glorified by all that he says, by all that we think over these next two days, uh, and all that that we do. Lord, please be glorified uh, in uh, in this conference and in these sessions, we pray. So we ask for your blessings upon us and upon uh, Dr. Curto, and we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Welcome, Tony. I think if Pastor Troutman had read me that list of people who had been here before me, I would have said no. (laughs) I get to teach at a seminary with men that I consider to be giants in the faith. Men who have spent their lives uh, studying, preparing, teaching things that... I don't even begin to comprehend in in many ways. And I look at myself and I do what I do because I love the Lord. And I'm going to be speaking at this conference not because I'm an expert. The, The Puritans aren't my vocation. It's not what I spend my life studying, preparing to do. In a sense, the Puritans are just part of my life because of the way God introduced them to me and the impact that they had uh, in my life. So let me read a scripture passage out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, and then uh, I will begin. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready uh, went in with him to the marriage feast of the Lamb, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know not what day or hour the Lord comes. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the lives of men that have been used of you in mighty ways. We ask that you would help us to, uh, to, to understand some of the ethos of these men, what made them the men they were and the women that they were, and how they served you in your kingdom. And we do thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by way of background, how I got to come to the Puritans and and why they mean to me what they mean. 
My wife and I were saved uh, in the Jesus movement in Southern California. And the first few years of our Christian experience, we spent in a commune that basically was very evangelistic. I mean, we spent just about every day of our lives out on the streets telling people about Christ and whatnot. It was very Arminian. We believed that man had a free will. Well, after some time, that community sent Kathleen and I to New York City. When I got to New York City, the first thing I wanted to do was to go preach in front of the Watchtower Society in Brooklyn. And so I had met a man, a pastor of a small community church, didn't really know much about him, and had mentioned to him about wanting to go down and do that, and he said, well, I'll take you down. And so he did, took me down, and and I preached, and we got done, we were driving home, and he said something to me that sounded very Calvinistic. And I said, that sounds very Calvinistic. He said, well, I am a Calvinist. I said, if you're a Calvinist, what were you doing out on the streets with me? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, Calvinists don't evangelize. He said, that's nonsense. So he invited me to his study. The man had, and still to my knowledge this day, had the most extensive Puritan library. And he said, you start reading these men and tell me that men who are Reformed and Calvinistic don't have an evangelistic zeal. So for the next two years, 1974 and 1975, I spent in that man's study reading the Puritans. And my original going to read them was, how can you be, with that question, how can you be Reformed and Calvinistic and maintain a uh, zeal for evangelism, maintain a desire to see the unconverted become converted? And it was then that, and and what I primarily did at that point is I didn't read them from, in a sense, a historical perspective. I did that later just to kind of get some bearings. But I read them because of the content of their sermons. If you've not read Puritan sermons, you have missed out on a tremendous blessing of God to the church uh, through the ages. But I also have another reason for thanking the Lord for introducing me to the Puritans. When I first started reading them, my wife, Kathleen, basically started picking them up and said, nope, they're too hard, they're too difficult for me. And she didn't do much reading in the Puritans. When we went to Uganda in 1995, I took my library over, which is a pretty extensive uh, Puritan library also, And in some sense, it's all she had to read. She couldn't go down to the public library. She couldn't go to the seminary library, pick up anything else. The only thing she had to read was my library, and she started reading the Puritans. For, For the 10 years that we served there, she read the Puritans, read them uh, pretty thoroughly. When we came back to the States in 2004 to Covenant Community Orthodox Presbyterian Church, Kathleen started teaching the women through those books and studies for 20 years until the Lord took her home. She was teaching the women, going through, writing questions, doing things. And why I bring that up is providentially, the last book that she was actually working on to teach the ladies through was The Mystery of Providence. And God mysteriously moved in our lives a little over a year ago, just as she was working through those things. And the two works that had the greatest impact on that one month was that work that she was reading on the mystery of providence and flavels keeping the heart 
and I would watch her and she was going through all of these things and she'd suddenly say to me, Tony, you remember when Watson said this? And she would quote a section out of it. And I'd say, yes, I remember when, when he said that. She said, wow, that is really comforting. That is, that is really uplifting. That really sets your mind on heaven. And I've often said to people who talk to me about that time, I said, what my wife's reading of the Puritans and her knowledge that she learned from them about the God she loved was that she did not wrestle with his providences. She embraced his promises. Why study the Puritans? They're just a a small group of individuals within the church of Jesus Christ in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. One reason to study the Puritans is because of the spiritual impact that they had upon the nation of England, Scotland, Ireland, the impact that they had on the American colonies. The impact that they have on our own connection. I mean, basically, most of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's first generation of ministers were uh, taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia under the influence of John Murray, who basically was a uh, in that line of the English Puritan movement. What can we learn from them? Well. I'll talk about that as I go through the study and, and try to open this up. But I guess I would summarize it this way. One, we can learn the ethos of the Puritan movement in Matthew 25 in this section on the parable of the virgins. They were concerned about being prepared to die. In fact, one man has wrote that the Puritan movement could be summarized in this way. The Puritans were men and women who knew how to live well and die well. They lived well for Christ. They died well in Christ. And that's the ethos. That's the heart of the movement. And that's what we can learn to live well for Christ and to die well in Christ as he has called us. Briefly, what I want to do tonight is just introduce us to this phrase, the Puritans, and who they are, and how they uh, came about, and then some characteristics that I think is important to, uh, to recognize. The term Puritan was actually first used in 1657, and it was a term that was used similarly to the way the term Christian was first used. It wasn't a uh, compliment. It was a derision. It was a, it was a smack. It was um, some way to put these people down. They called them Puritans. And so that has led some historians to look at the date of Puritans, the Puritans from 1567 when the term is first used, to either the date 1662 or the date 1688. Now, what's the significance of those two dates? Well, if it starts in 1567, that's during the reign of Elizabeth I, and we will talk about her in a moment. But it ends then in 166, if it ends in 1662, it ends with what's called the Great Ejection, where 2,000 ministers are kicked out of their pulpits in England because of their nonconformity. 
because of their unwillingness to do or to practice the Anglican ceremonies. 2,000 ministers. Now, sometimes the Puritans are said to be separatists. Some of them were. But 2,000 of them weren't. They were ejected from their pulpits. And it was after that time that we will start hearing about, and I'll talk about tomorrow morning, one such Puritan by the name of John Bunyan and his writing of the Pilgrim's Progress and how that plays into uh, all that's going on here. But they're kicked out. Some of them have conformed and, and stay in the church. But in 1688 is when we had the Glorious Revolution where William and Mary come to the throne in England and the act of toleration is done. And so basically all of these separatists or all these people are now able to worship freely and they go back into the, they just establish their pulpits and Presbyterianism grows a little bit and independency or congregationalism grows a little bit because they're being tolerated. You don't have to be in the Church of England any longer to be in good standing in England. Basically, if you weren't in the Church of England, you weren't in good standing. So some look at it and say 16 or 1567, the reign of Elizabeth to 1662 or 1688. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on the other hand, argues that it actually began, the Puritan movement, in 1524 with William Tyndale. Now, most of us know who William Tyndale is because he's the one that gave us the scriptures for the first time in the English language, okay, translating the Bible into English. Up to that point, most of the churches still had Latin Bibles. The uh, Christians didn't read their Bibles. But Lloyd-Jones calls Tyndale the first Puritan because, one, Tyndale left England to translate the Scripture without ecclesiastical authority. You didn't do anything without permission of, of the bishops. I mean, you, you, you basically had to... You, it was The Bible was banned in many places, and so the idea of taking it out of the Latin and putting it into uh, the vernacular of the people was anathema. It was, it was treasonable in the church at that time. Secondly, Tyndale left England without royal authority. Now, it's Henry VIII that is the king of England at this time, uh, having reigned from 1509 to 1547, a uh, king of the House of Tudor. But basically what Tyndale was doing was he says, I am putting the truth before tradition, the church, and before worldly authority, the king. The word of God is of such importance. And again, that's part of the ethos of the Puritan movement. They were really striving to be, from Tyndale's day on, to be men and women of the book. So that the scripture, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But as we talk about then this uh, rise, this movement that begins, we have to go all the way back to the British monarchs beginning at Henry VIII. Remember that Henry VIII broke from the Roman Catholic Church for no higher motive than he wanted a marriage annulled so he could marry somebody else. He basically got an Anglican to write him an annulment, but he just ended up divorcing and killing to where he ended up having six wives. To appease, appease some of the Protestants, 
as the Reformation was going on, remember this is in the time of, of Luther and Calvin and others as they're, as they're going, as that Reformation is uh, spreading, Henry basically gave in some concessions, not because he believed they were biblical, but because he wanted to appease them and win them on their side. So as soon as he did, what does he do? He reverses them all again. Well, this caused the first division in England. It was a division among Protestants. Some said, listen, we can tolerate Henry as long as he lets us do some things, preach the gospel, even though he's making us do everything, wear vestments and kneel and you know do all this other stuff, as long as he lets me preach Christ, I'll give in to these other things. And we have such names as Thomas Cramner and Nicholas Ridley who were in that camp. But at the same time, there were others who said, no, we can't tolerate this. And so they left England. A name such as Matthew Coverdell, who also was a Bible translator, translated the Bible into English also. And John Hooper, who later will play a significant role in some of what goes on here in England. But they flee. They don't like what Henry's doing. Uh, They leave the country. Now, what's interesting is, as they leave the country, they're going to places like Zurich under Zwingli. They're going to places like Geneva under Calvin. They're going places um, like Constance under Martin Bucer. And, And especially Zwingli was a real radical. In other words, Zwingli didn't say, listen, you know, we need to go in and instruct them in the word to get them to to tear down the idols and the statues and all the stuff. He just walked in and tore them out. And so it was that kind of attitude that all these people that had left England were getting nurtured with versus those ones that were staying in England and basically just looking to see how much they could tolerate, how much or how far uh, they would go. And that went on until Henry died and his son, Edward, Edward VI, from 1547 to 1553, a very short reign. But he is the first Protestant king, really, of England. So all these guys that had gone over to Europe at that time to get away from Henry and to start congregations that were more faithful to Scripture, they all say, oh, great, we have a Protestant king now. Let's all go back to England. So they all come back to England, and that began to cause more strife between those who remained and those who hadn't. It's during this time that what comes about as the vestment Um, controversy uh, between Thomas Cramner and um, uh, John Hooper. Now Hooper actually didn't have a problem with wearing the vestment. At one point he just said, listen, my problem is, is that you're making me wear the vestment. It's not so much that I have something against wearing a vestment, but you can't make me wear the vestment because you argue that it's a thing indifferent. And if it's a thing indifferent, then it doesn't matter whether we do it or whether we don't do it. So why are you 
the very fact that you're making me wear this, become a bishop, because that's what they were going to do, is make him a bishop. The very fact that you're making me do this demonstrates that you really don't believe it's a thing indifferent. That it is part of Christ's command. Well, again, that division begins to grow uh, within the church. And in some sense, it's even exasperated a bit more because when Edward dies very quickly, uh, Mary becomes the Queen of England, Mary I. We sometimes refer to her as Bloody Mary and began to kill hundreds of Christians uh, who are not only not conforming now to the Anglican Church, but aren't coming back to the Roman Catholic Church. She tries to reintroduce Roman Catholicism, which actually allowed some compromise in the English Church because they said, well, we can allow some of the things the Roman... Like, how, how close to the Roman Catholic line can we get and still be Protestant, basically, is the attitude. Well, again, when Mary begins to reign, you have a whole flock of people going over to um, the continent to get, to get away. One such individual is a man by the name of John Knox. When John Knox first leaves England uh, to go over to Europe, he goes to Frankfurt on the Main, city of Frankfurt that we know of. There is an English congregation there that has been started by a man by the name of William Whittingham. And what Whittingham did was he produced or provided a liturgy for the congregation that did not follow the Edwardian prayer book. A guy by the name of Richard Cox, who was another refugee, basically showed up and said, listen, this is wrong. We have to have a church with the face of an English church, this liturgy. John Knox says, no, the face of the church should be Christ church, a biblical liturgy. Well, it got really nasty. Knox ended up, that's when he goes to Geneva and sits under Calvin for a while. And then finally Mary dies in 1558 and Elizabeth comes to the throne. 1558 to 1603. Now, if you remember, I stated the first time the term Puritan is used is in 1567. So this is in Mary's reign. Mary was a Protestant. They believed that she would further Reformation. And so many of these people come back from the continent, back to England thinking that this Reformation is going to take place, only to find the Anglican Church basically entrenched in its Anglicanism. Kind of a pseudo-Catholicism, as it were. And many of these men that came back basically began to look and say, the heart of what we want to do is not in the politics of the church, even though in some sense Puritanism was a political movement. I mean, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, uh, the influence that had on American colonists in the 1700s that, in my opinion, led to the American uh, War of Independence. 
But they, they began to look and say, we need to get to the heart of the people, not, not concern ourselves with the politics of the church, but concern ourselves with the mission of the church in Jesus Christ. And so you have a guy by the name of Richard Greenham, for instance, who now has looked and said, 1524 and following, we have the scriptures in the uh, language of the people, but people don't know how to read it. So he writes a directory for reading and understanding Holy Scripture. And he's not writing it for the bishops. He's writing it for the people that is in his pews. He's writing it to the men and women who are hearing the Scripture expounded for the first time. William Perkins at this time basically begins to write, one of the books, and I'll talk about it later uh, tomorrow, one of the books he writes is The Art of Prophesying, which is all about preaching. So here you have, on the one hand, basically sermons that are going out to preachers in this movement, how to preach how to bring the Word of God, and then instruction for the hearers, how to hear the Word of God, how to search the Scripture, how to be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures to see if what was being said is true. Now, that back and forth basically continues through the whole Elizabeth reign, and then when Elizabeth dies and you basically get uh, King James the fourth of Scotland becoming King James the first of England. That's where it goes political. That's where suddenly James is basically trying to impose on the Scots the Anglican faith. Now that will all culminate. And this whole period culminates in the Westminster Assembly. Parliament is dealing with the question, how do we, how do we handle the Scots? How do we handle the Presbyterians and the, and the uh, Congregationalists that are in our midst? How do we handle all these? Can there be and should there be a uniformity of religion in the British Isles? Or do we let everything just fracture? So all of the teaching through all those years really come to crystallization. They come to that place where they are codified, as it were for us, in the Westminster uh, documents, the secondary standards that we use um, in our church. So that's a give you kind of a just a, a general uh, view of what was happening historically and how and why those kinds of divisions came up. It was, in my mind, as we read here in the parable of the Tim Virgins, it was some unwise virgins and some wise virgins some who didn't have the oil of biblical Christianity, and some that did. Now, I make a statement like that, recognizing that there are many Anglican readers that we read during this period of time, Richard Sibbs and others, who were very godly men. And many of them didn't have to face some of the same kind of of trials and tribulations. Like, um, when I was in Uganda... um, The Ugandan church, which is an Anglican, part of the Anglican um, 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 church system, basically they had 11 bishops. And of those 11 bishops, only one of them was a converted man. And I often got to preach in 
Church, have you gone to churches because that one bishop would open the way for me to go in and preach? And then he would just say to me, Dr. Curdo, preach whatever you want. There were a lot of men in the English church that had bishops like that. Not all of them were like bad or you know against the, the Puritans. And so many of them had pulpits and opportunities that others were being deprived of uh, because of uh, the uh, Anglican um, uh, backlash that was coming. So what are six characteristics? One, these men who were looking for further reformation in the church were men who primarily and firstly emphasized a life shaped by Scripture. They emphasized a life shaped by Scripture. Let me just give you the titles of the first three chapters of Henry uh, Scruder's book on the Christian's daily walk. The first chapter is on walking with God generally. The second is on beginning the day with God. The third was general principles for walking with God through the progress of the day. And he goes on, walking with God at mealtime, walking with God in the evening, walking with God when you go to bed, walking with God at work, walking with God on the Sabbath. And all of that emphasis was on the Christian life. I mean, basically, think about it. That's our life, isn't it? We get up in the morning, we begin the day with God, we walk through the day with God, we end the day with God, we come to the Sabbath with the people of God to be walking in union and communion with Him. Or what Lewis Bailey, in the title of his book, calls the practice of piety. What does a Christian look like? How do you know a Christian? Well, you know him by his behavior. The Bible is pretty obvious in, in, in one sense. It tells us, by this shall they know that you're my disciples, by the love you show one for another. Well, what does that love look like? How does it express itself in daily life? Let's look at the scripture. Let's see what the scripture says. It is our rule of faith, what I believe, and practice what I do. The Bible teaches me what I'm to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of me to walk with Him in fellowship. And so they they give this kind of emphasis. It wasn't just the way it was in many of the Anglican churches where you just went to church. You were just part of a parish and you belonged to a church and you went there. Uh, Every once in a while the pastor might come to your house to eat a meal, but outside of that there was no real hunger and thirst after a godliness. It It was an emphasis on what we sometimes refer to as experimental Christianity. Having the Bible um, be so much a part of our lives that it controls. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll probably say this again, but they used to say about Bunyan that if you cut him, he didn't bleed blood, he bled Bibline. And it was that kind of emphasis that, that these Puritan pastors and these Puritan uh, writers were trying to bring uh, to the everyday lay person as he lives his life before the Lord. Second was their emphasis 
of the work of the Trinity in the work of salvation. The work of the Trinity in the work of salvation. It wasn't just simply enough to confess that it's God the Father who elects, that it's God the Son who uh, um, uh, uh, buys or accomplishes, and it's God the Holy Spirit that applies. They want to know how that works out in our lives, how that is uh, brought home in the work of our salvation. So sometimes when we talk about as theologians what we sometimes call the order salutis, we talk about justification, sanctification, adoption, all those doctrines in the order salutis and, and how they come about. Well, what they want to know is, how does God justify? How does God apply that work of Christ to us? How does the Holy Spirit work in our lives to do that? So I can tell the true from the false. Believe not all spirits, but try all spirits. So there was that, that kind of emphasis that, that came on the work of the Trinity in that work of salvation. That's why the third session uh, tomorrow I've picked Bunyan, because I think Bunyan does as good a job as anyone in the Pilgrim's Progress of laying out the Puritan understanding of that work. Thirdly, they emphasize the work of the church in spreading Christ's kingdom. They emphasize the work of the church in spreading Christ's kingdom. Again, this is, you know, we're going through a period and a time when church and state is often confused. And some believed, some of the Anglicans believed it was the, the um, uh, government or the king that was to do the work. Remember that the Lord gave to the apostles the keys of the kingdom? Well, they all thought the keys of the kingdom belonged to the king. He was the one who said was in the church, and he was the one who said who was out of the church. He was the one who said where you could preach. He was the one who said where you couldn't preach. And they said, no, that's the work of the church. Now, Here's an interesting twist in terms of the theology. Uh, they believe that wholeheartedly, but the Westminster Assembly was actually called by Parliament. It was an assembly called by the civil magistrate. And there's a place in the Confession of Faith where they actually said, when there's great confusion, basically, on what religious things, it, it's okay for the king or for the government to call an assembly. That was the way they kind of got around their own little loophole in terms of looking and saying, well, you know what, we, we believe in the separation of church and state. Most of them did. Separation of church and state, but yet we recognize the government or parliament's uh, right to call us as a religious assembly to produce the documents that we are, uh, we are producing. But it is the covenant. They, they recognize that, that God is a covenant God. And that God has made covenant with his people, and that covenant people are the instruments by which he spreads his kingdom throughout all of the earth. They are the agent of what I sometimes refer to as the evangelistic or missionary enterprise. None other. It is only the church. Only the church of Jesus Christ bears the keys of the kingdom. Now, notice also what they do in terms of the Westminster Confession of Faith in <clears throat> chapter 25. They tell us that the ministry 
and all the ordinances and all of the commandments of God have been given to the universal visible church of Christ. And then their ecclesiology said the universal visible church of Christ is made up of particular visible churches. The Church of Scotland, the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, Church of America. Okay, They're made up. So that's why they worked for that conformity in religion. Uniformity in religion. Because they said, if we are the universal visible church to which all the gifts have been given, then together as the church, we're to see his kingdom spread. We're to see his kingdom's kingdom spread. They emphasize the preaching of Christ. And again, I won't go into much of that tonight because I have a longer section on preaching uh, tomorrow. But they emphasize uh, preaching that focused on Christ. Christ was to be in all of our preaching. Christ was to be in all of our pleading with men. One of the things that that um, I often did was uh, I pick up sermons and then just read the the application, read the ends of the sermons where they were actually applying Christ that they had found in the text of Scripture and then begin to apply it. William. Um, uh, uh, Perkins basically has, uh, and, and I'll read some of this tomorrow, has a section in there on uh, those whom we, we confront. And in that section, as we confront them, he says, we confront the unrepentant, the seeker, the one who is teachable, the one who is... Uh, and he goes down through this whole list, basically, in how we can best apply Christ to them. And it's very, very insightful. And they were, fifthly, preachers who preach to the whole man. They preach to enlighten his mind. They preach to convict his conscience. And this is the part I love the most. They preach to woo the heart. David is described to us in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. And that's one of the things that made Puritan preaching what it was, was they were wooing the hearts of men. They were after their heart. They knew they had to come through the mind, that the scripture needed to be understood. It needed to be explained. They were expositors of the word. And they have many uh, um, writings on how to exposit the word. They also realized that the problem with man was his love of sin. So they had to expose him. They had to bring his conscience, uh, the word of God, to bear on his conscience, to, to bring him, to arrest him, to hold him up, to make him look at himself. I was used an illustration with Joe this afternoon when I lived in, in Uganda. Um, uh, you would... We had problems with bugs and all kinds of things. And you'd walk into a room and you'd flip on the light and, and these critters would just start running every which way to get away. And my job was to make sure I killed them all so my wife wouldn't step on any. So I would, I would basically run around and herd them all into a corner. When I had them trapped in a corner, that's when I would start spraying the doom on them. Well, in a sense, when the Puritans looked at it and said, you know, when you start turning on the light of God's word, what happens? Sinners... Poof, they go in every which direction. 
They try to get away. And the preacher's job is to really, in a sense, put them in the corner. Confront their conscience. Make them look at themselves as they really are. Because unless they do, they won't cry out to Christ. Repentance came not because... Not simply because they, they uh, thought that sin was wrong. Repentance came because they were overwhelmed by the grace of God. They saw their need. And when they saw their need, they saw a Christ who would meet their need. And the Christ who would meet their need was worthy of their repentance. Worthy of their laying a hold uh, of Him. And so they were preachers who preached to the whole man. And then lastly... They believed in the mediatorial reign of Christ. Paul says to us in Philippians chapter 2 that God has given to Christ a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord and that he reigns on high. And they fought for, and though it was more of a Scottish statement in terms of the uh, um, uh, covenant and crown work of Christ, the mediatorial reign of Christ, they believed him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one Puritan said, there's only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of God with Christ on the throne and the kingdom of Satan with under Christ's feet. And that's the ethos. That's really the characteristic that, that came. Tomorrow morning, and I'll open this up for some questions. Tomorrow morning I'll talk about um, the Puritans as pastor theologians with God-centered living, God-centered preaching, again expanded on that in a God-centered church to talk a little bit more about uh, what they meant by uh, those things. And then look at the uh, way of Puritans' understanding of the way of salvation through the work of John Bunyan. Are there any questions? Yes. Uh, Nine thirty. Right. That's right. I was just ready for a deep theological question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, most people will, will end it between 1662 and 1688. That's usually when they, when, when they will look at the end. On the other hand, I would consider that though Puritanism as a movement stopped, Puritanism as an uh, ethos, as an attitude, continued. And we see it in guys like Spurgeon, we see it in guys like Jonathan Edwards, we see it in even an Anglican like J.C. Ryle uh, in the 19th century. Um, and, and I don't think it's wrong necessarily to refer to them as, as Puritans, though technically uh, most historians would say they weren't. Like most historians, I, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones that the, that the um, attitude of Puritanism came before we actually see the full-blown movement of Puritanism in a man like William Tyndale. Most guys will refer, not refer to him as a Puritan, but just call him a precursor to the Puritans. 
or the grandchild of the Puritans at the other end, I tend to just say, listen, they had, they had the ethos. They had the heart of a Puritan. And so it's not wrong for us to, to, to recognize God's moving in those, uh, those lives. Yes, sir. How is the Puritan term bad? Well, well, there's really there's we're talking about English Puritanism here. Um, I mentioned John Knox. I'm not going to talk about the what I consider to be the Puritan work in Scotland under Knox and others because it's usually referred to us historically as a Covenanter movement. If you go over to Holland, there's also a movement that's been influenced by William Ames, who is an English uh, theologian who basically goes to Holland, actually was at the uh, Senate of Dort, um, but they called him uh, precisionist. And so it's kind of like if, you're, like, if you're a precisionist, you know, it's, it's like you're, you're more precise than God is. If you're a Puritan, you think you're more pure than even God. Okay? So it, it was that kind of, you know, kind of, kind of thing. It's like having, you know, when you're out on the street witnessing somebody goes, oh, you just think you're holier than anybody. That was kind of the, the attitude. And most of the early Puritans, like um, um, uh, Greenham and Rogers and Perkins, uh, they didn't like the term. It wasn't until later that the term actually got embraced. Yes, we do believe in pure worship. We do believe in pure living. We do believe. And these things shouldn't offend us. We should embrace them. And there's a story about a man in in Holland that somebody came up to him and basically said, why do you have to be so precise? And he said, because I serve a precise God. Which is true. So... Why should we be afraid of be calling, being called precisionists? If we serve a precise God, we should be precise as He is precise. If we serve a holy God, we should be holy as He is holy. If we serve a pure God, we should be pure as He is pure. And the Bible clearly teaches us that. Yes. It's sort of like pushing more an observation I've never realized before. Is they keep coming home. The, the Puritans kept coming back as soon as they could, and how their love for those people is so important. Yeah, um, they did. I mean, it was it was no, none of them ever left England willingly, and all of them looked for the day that they would be able to um, to come home and prayed to that end. And when even the smallest opportunity presented itself, they were there. And they, and they were often there under you know what turned out to be great peril to their lives. I mean, think about you know Bunyan, who's at the end of this period. So he's writing the Pilgrim's Progress in, in uh, the late 60s, 1667, I think. Uh, uh, I've got the date. When he's been put in prison, they've you know he he wasn't one of the ejected ministers because he happened to be an independent, but he's like we're all the way at the end of the period, and he had every ample opportunity to to flee or take even Samuel Rutherford. I mean, all the imprisonments he went through. We have some of the most beautiful letters written by a man, in my opinion. 
in the letters of Samuel Rutherford, and most of them he wrote from jail. And he, he basically praises God for his jail time because he learns more of Christ in jail than he learned in, in basically in all his studies. It's incredible. Yes. Pastor? Any other questions? Thank you, Dr. Curdo.